Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past, today, about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, they will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Coventry City, West Bromwich Albion, Sheffield Wednesday, Aston Villa, Watford, Crystal Palace, Queen's Park Rangers, Cardiff City, Northampton Town, and England under-21 striker Gary Thompson, about two focus-on interviews for Shoot magazine from around 1981 to 1983. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Uh, Gary Lindsay Thompson. Birthplace and date? Uh, birthplace, Birmingham, Birmingham, October the 7th, 1959. And your height? Six foot one. And do you still weigh 12 stone, 10 pounds? In my dreams. <laughs> um, I'll be about, I would imagine, about, I'd like to say 15 and a half stone. That, that's, that doesn't feel too bad. But it's probably a touch more than that. If the wife comes in here, she'll go 16, 17. All right, well, we'll keep her out of it for now. How are you doing, Gary? How's things? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. I'm all right. Brilliant. Now, you're one of those special players who have got more than one of these old shoot, focus on and super focus interviews from the 80s. So there's a lot to choose from. So let's begin. Right. Um, well, let's begin here. Because the first thing that jumps out from, for me uh, from the first of the two profiles, mm. which I'm guessing is from 1981, because firstly, you were playing at Coventry City then. And, and secondly, that's yeah. the year the most famous band from Coventry, the Specials, released the single, uh, the classic single, Ghost Town. And here you are in this profile, photographed with teammate Tommy English, and you're dressed in the typical scar suits, uh, the thin ties, and you've even yeah. got the little black trilby hat perched on your head. Um, yeah. Tom, Tommy's wearing poorly fitting sunglasses and holding an electric guitar. Um, I'm not exactly sure which yeah. chord it is he's pretending to play there. And, and it looks like the photographer has told you to screw your face up to demonstrate what a racket Tommy's guitar in is, even though it's obviously yeah. not plugged in. Um, it's a brilliant topical get-up for 1981. Do you, do you remember doing that particular photo shoot? I remember the photo shoot because obviously the specials were hip at the time. Um, it was just a new brand. Of, I mean, I did um, that Scar music before, obviously with my dad and uh, my uncles and that. But... Mm. When it hit, when Coventry exploded, as it were, that was the thing. Everyone was into that. And then um, they said to, they said they wanted to do a, a photo shoot. Specials were playing. I think the selector was out. There was the madness. There was loads of bands just coming coming out at the time. There's, we we had the tonic suits anyway, mm. and we we used to we we started wearing all that sort of stuff. And they're like the older players, Bobby McDonald, Tommy Hutchinson, they'd be hammering us all the time. We were the young kids just getting in the team, and they said, "What do you lot look like?" But we thought we were the bee's knees. We thought we were so hip and that. And he said, do the photo. So we brought our own. I, I, I mean, I love the, I love the bright colour. So I had a purple suit. I think Tom's was a kind of greyish, but I had my pork pie out as well. Yeah. And as it, so we did the photo shoot. I was pulling me Sid James' face. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a bit of a laugh, which at the time, it's, yeah, you have a laugh, you feel about it. 20, 30, nearly 40 years later, some of my workmates found it the other day. And I, I got ripped all day. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they didn't look as uh, smart and, uh, you know, hip and trendy as you did back then. Hey, you know, I mean, we thought we were we were the best dressed, we were invincible, we were playing football. Um, I mean, people think football has made loads of money. I think the average wage for us like, was about £150, £200 a week. And we were paying generally £40 a pound tax. But it was we were playing football. We were doing something that what we did since we were school kids or we wanted to do since we were at school. So for us, it wasn't about the money. We were playing, we were enjoying it. We, we were doing something all my mates wanted to do. So mm. yeah, it was, it was brilliant. And we'd go to different nice places. We'd go to nightclubs and we'd get in at the front of the queue. People knew us and it was, it was great. Well, you started off at Coventry uh, and then moved on to West Brom where we find you in the second interview, which is from about 1983. Um, and if we look across right. the two interviews, you've, you've credited two people as big influences on your career. The firstly, there's Coventry youth coach, Bert Edwards, and then there's yeah. Dave Sexton, uh, who was the England yeah. under 21 manager when you were called up. Um, tell us about both guys uh, and how they helped you in your early career. Bert Edwards was, um, from when I was a kid, I, I joined Coventry at 14, 15. Paul Dyson was the regular centre-half. Centre 
in the youth team, as it were, or reserves, shall I say, reserves, youth team, school kids. Paul Dyson was the same school as me, and Paul was like uh, my best friend. So they've said to him at 14, you got any good mates in that? So he invited myself and a lad called Malcolm Percival, who we call Percy, down to uh, train at Coventry. I trained a couple of days. I loved it. Percy trained a couple of days, and he couldn't do three days on the bounce. So he left. He just wouldn't have it. Uh, but I love just being around footballers and just love training and all that. And uh, that's how it all started. Bert sort of clocked onto me. There weren't too many black kids there anyway. And he sort of took me under his wing a little bit. I mean, for a geezer to give... I mean, it, it was kind of a tough love because Bert just used to hammer me all the time. That's not good enough, blah, blah, blah. He was always on me. And to be fair, because of my nature, I mean, you're too young to see me play, but I was a tad aggressive at times. And um, I would get sent off. I would, I would have fights in training and that. But Bert always, he was like me, um, me uncle, me dad, because my, my dad is probably one of the uh, fairest men ever when he was alive. And Bert was a bit like me dad. He didn't like any foul play, didn't like any skullduggery. And like, so he was always pulling me into line. Bert got me on a straight and narrow. I, I quit commentary one day when I was at, uh, I think I was an apprentice, and they, everyone was on me. I'd come back from a bad injury, and everywhere I turned, I trained with the first team, I got hammered. I trained with the youth team, I got hammered. I got sent off in a youth game. And I packed my bags and said, I'm off, see you later. Went, went back to uh, Birmingham. Um, my mum and dad met me at the train station. Took me to, there's a place for Wimpy's in them days. Took me to Wimpy. I had the ice cream float, chips and all that burger. Mum listened to me moan for like about half an hour. What a <laughs> crap place it was, the way they treat me. I'm not having it. And then they put me back on the train. So uh, I walked back in. I went, lads, I'm back. And they went, no, you've been sent back, at you? And then, um, but Bert was the one. He got, he clocked it. He pulled me. And he said, you're going to have up days and down days. You're going to have good and bad spells. Like, he said, you come through it. It's all about your character. And Bert Edwards was um, a massive influence on me from the moment youth team football, reserve football. Even when I went into the first team, he was always one of them that would always look after me. Colin Dobson was there as well. And then, obviously, Ron Wiley and Gordon Mill took over. And Ron Wiley was uh, the one that took it to another level. I mean, when Ron passed this year, and I think I will say on Twitter, Ron bullied me to make me into a player. Or get a career out of the game, but the, the initial start was Bert Edwards. Ron just carried it on. So the two of them massively indebted to, and um, Dave Sexton. I went to the under twenty ones, uh, made me debut. I got called up about eighteen months before, broke my leg. Then I got a late, late call up, scored two goals, and um, everything went really well. Or I scored either one, and Asian East got two, or I got two, and Asian East got one. But we beat Romania. And as I come off the pitch, Dave Sexton came up to me and gave me a toffee. Now, this Dave Sexton, like he was manager of Man United, he, he was like a monster name, manager of Chelsea. He had uh, the likes of Alan Hudson and players like that, Peter Osgood. So we all knew him growing up. This fella comes up to me at the end, because he hadn't said a lot. Venables was the man. Venables would do all the coaching, but Dave would come in and do his bits. And he came and gave me a toffee. Yeah, well done, son. You can have the toffee. I'm like, oh, thank you. And he says, I don't only give them to people who play well. So you've done very well. I ne never got a toffee ever again in all the time I played at Coventry with Dave but uh, yeah that was the start of it and he was one I always wanted to try and impress he was mm. a, a lovely bloke and we fell out of Coventry a couple of times I was, I was silly things which is usually my fault but uh, very very good he, I had a certain a game at Coventry I was an aggressive very quick powerful centre forward who scored goals Dave come in as manager he got sacked from Man United ended up as manager of Coventry and he broke my game down and started afresh you can imagine over a period of a year, for me, I was in and out the first team. He started leaving me out, but he was showing me different things. And I think due to him, I managed to get 20 years out of the game because he actually broke my game down and started all over again. Mm. Uh, well, you just mentioned about breaking your leg there um, and you mentioned it in both of the interviews here. Um, and of course, there's yeah. a lot in the news at the moment, isn't there, about uh, about serious injuries with, with players. And But I mean, how, how do you think it affected you both in, in the, the psychological and let's say, a, a mental state as well in the long term? And yeah. did it impact your career, do you think, in the longer term? I, I, I didn't think it did. Uh, I got back playing. And uh, initially, I, I came back with a limp because I, I was out for about 11 months. And when I came back, I had a limp. And what happened, we'd had a tra injured in a training session. Um, Coventry had played. We played Aston Villa on the third, on their Wednesday, sorry, Thursday off, trained on the Friday. And they had a big practice match, um, first team versus reserves or whatever. And um, we didn't have enough bodies. So this kid, uh, he got a scouse left-back, centre-half-back from Liverpool. This lad come over. He joined in. And I remember chasing the ball down the channel. I, I sort of beat him. I knew he was coming across. And I could see him coming. I thought, I'll just touch this past him. I'm gone. 
Next thing I opened my eyes and Jim Horton and uh, Jim Blythe were looking at me, stroking my head, going, don't look at your leg. So I looked at my leg and passed out. So like, uh, it, was, it wasn't a lad's fault. It was just one of them things that happened. Like, But uh, that having that injury, like, and for training, training games, practice games, we'd always be shin pads. And the first thing from that, when I came back, I was wearing shin pads in a, a youth team game, my first game back, but my me, me calves were killing me. Everything was too tight. So I took me, me uh, the strappings off like, and uh, played with my socks rolled down, which made me feel freer. And from then on, most of my career, you'll see me with socks rolled down, which people thought, oh, he's really hard, that Thompson. And it was just that I felt more comfortable um, playing like that. So the broken leg did, did cause that. I, um, Danny, I remember saying after, um, a couple of years ago, I did an interview at Coventry um, before the game, myself and Danny Thomas. And obviously, Danny played with me at Coventry for a long time. And Stuart and Alan then were saying, um, they remember... There was a game when we beat Man United 4-1, I think, or 4-2. And Gordon McQueen was the Scotland um, international. And uh, I tore him apart. And that, that was the day the commentary fans sort of really took to me. But everyone used to talk about that game. And Stuart and I mentioned the game. And he said, like, you know, you broke your leg not long after. And um, how do you feel? Do you feel recovered? Not, I mean, I played for 20 years. So I, I went, yeah, yeah. So I felt recovered fine. People used to say to me, how's your leg? How are you now? But they also said that, the break um, would be stronger. So I was never too bothered about it breaking again. But uh, Danny Thomas was there at the time and Danny said, I watched that game when you played against Gordon McQueen and you looked like your career was just going to go on from strength to strength. And he said, we felt when you came back, even though I was playing and we ended up in a League Cup semi-final or got decent moves and whatever, um, they felt that I'd lost just a few degrees off, off the game line. So say like I lost 5%. Mm. Um, and they said that 5% was the difference between being an international class striker or whatever and an average Premier League or, or top league striker. So I didn't think about it till then. And that was just a few years ago. And I thought about it and he's probably right. That injury did, I mean, I broke my leg in three places. Um, and that, I mean, it, at the time, the fellow, the surgeon, they wanted to put a plate in it. He refused to put a plate in it. He uh, argued with everybody. By, by the way, I'm out cold after the time, like waking up, dropping, coming out. And like, I had my kids so people get coming up and saying uh, is that Gary Thompson can he sign an autograph and basically my language I was like you just fuck off and leave me alone because I was in absolute agony but uh, Mr Aldridge the doctor he made sure they they, they put it all together plaster a parasite and all that and he examined me or they x-rayed it and checked me out every month or two months and made sure that he knitted together properly but he refused to put a pin in because he said because it was so low down if they put a pin in the chances were I was not going to play properly again so in that respect, yeah, I suppose that there were um, problems with it after. And mentally, it was a problem. Jimmy Hill, I remember Jimmy Hill taking the mickey out of me um, in the meeting in front of the lads and saying, any chance you stop limping and that? Because we know you broke your leg and we all do feel sorry for you. But it's now nearly a year and perhaps you could just get on playing football. And I had the raving ump like, I mean, I broke my leg in three places. But later on, because Bert could come and pull me and he went, he has got a point. So like, yeah. I, I, it probably did affect me a lot longer than I thought it did. But then I've still played for nearly 20 years. So in a way, I still got away with it. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you touched on it earlier there and you uh, mentioned about the, the League Cup semi-final that you played for Coventry against yeah. West Ham in 1980-81. Uh, and for anybody who hasn't seen this or doesn't know the match exactly, um, you, were man of, you must have been man of the match because you had a pretty busy time, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, as a team... Everyone's talking about Crystal Palace being the team of the, the 80s, as it were. They had the likes of Clive Allen and Vince Hilaire and players like that. Some very, very good players. And like, um, we, we, I think we played Cambridge right early in the rounds. And then I had a bad hand injury and I was off for a couple of games. Got back in a team. So if you see me during that cup run, I had a, plastic, a, a thing on my arm, like a, a strap in on my hand, which they didn't know at the time was uh, the, the referee would come in and check your studs, check any rings and all that. And so he took check mine and I just have a little bit of bandage around it. When, it's, when referee went out, take it off, and I had a, it was like a hunter's glove, and it was it was leather, but it had studs in it. It was rock hard. So if I caught anybody at the time, you'd knock them out. So like then they wrapped that in, in a, a bit of bit of wrapping, and it just looked like I still had my bandage on. Like so that was the start of it. So I was always wearing that. We played the game. Uh, we go one 0 down right early on in the game. Let's see. Uh, I can't remember someone. I think David Cross has a header. Um, Let's see, tries to catch it, slips under his grasp and goes in. He picks the ball up and, you know, like the naughty kid has to look left and right, see if anyone's seen it. Re referee, linesman's give the goal, 1-0 down. 
Next thing, I'm chasing a ball. Now I'm centre forward, but I, so I, re- I, I clock this quick, quick throw in. Alan Devonshire's on the ball. So I think, well, I can nip in front of him. I roll it back to Les. God knows what I'm doing back there. I nip, take the ball off Devonshire. I look, well, Les is on his goal line. And in them days, you could roll it back to the keeper. So I roll it back to Les. And uh, so, so, sorry, as I touch the ball off Devonshire, I look and see Les Sealy, look down at my feet, going to play the ball back, back to him. Next time I touch the ball, someone's standing right next to me and goes, keepers. So I look, it's Les. I slump on the ground, like we're 2 down. The cup, I feel Rowe has gone quiet. And Les went, I did say keepers, big man. Do you not hear me? And I went, F off, you just like, drop me right in it. Get up. And we mate Tom English, he wasn't playing, but he was sitting with my, my uh, girlfriend at the time and uh, like my family. And you can imagine there was a little bit of abuse flying around. Mm. But we went in at half time, we're two all down. We are the young kids. We don't know any fear. I walked in expecting the biggest rollicking of all time from Ron Wiley and Gordon Mill. Now, Gordon was one of them. If Gordon said he disappointed in you, it would kill you. Ron would just hammer you all the time. That's not good enough, blah, blah, blah. If Gordon just tripped his head, like, no, unacceptable. It'd break your heart. But they came in and they gave the best speech ever. You know your teammates, you grew up with these lads. Look at the person, the person next to you. you. This player, person, you, you know all his, his strengths, his weaknesses. Battle with him, blah, blah, blah. It, it was a great talk. I mean, I can't remember the after, but basically, trust your teammates, trust yourself. We'll get back in this game. We go back into the game, second half. I think it was um, Andy Blair, winter ball, carries it a little bit, plays it to me, um, get between the centre half and the goalkeeper. Phil Parson flying out, tap it past him, do the Yakinian in it, and then uh, game on. Danny Thomas picks the ball up, cuts inside, 30 yards, smashes a shot. Phil Parson carries it out. I think Jerry Daly taps it in. And then just towards the end, Steve runs, he runs 20, 30 yards with the ball, just carrying the ball, carrying the ball. I make an angle for him. He rolls it to me. And I I used to practice this because in a commentary, we had an indoor um, training area because I would never go out and warm up because it was too cold. So I'd be smashing balls against his wall and that. And me and Tom English would play balls into his turn and they shout a number. So he got eight, turn it in eight. So the ball, Steve runs, is running with the ball. I make an angle. He plays the ball to me and I just turn like I've been doing all the time. And I wasn't, if you look at it, my first touch wasn't the best. It nearly runs away from me, but I get a good connection. Beats Phil Parks 3 2. End up man in a match. Everyone talks about me. I'm on TV, like the star, as it were, for that five minutes. It was, um, it was great at the time. The next couple of days, the next couple of weeks, every time I went out for a meal with my girlfriend or went anywhere, people just kept staring at me. So I found that very uncomfortable. That's like Gary Thompson. It was awkward. Because you're a kid, you don't know any different, do you? But uh, on the balance, it was, it was a hell of a game, hell of a day. Gillespie, Hunt. One last desperate fling from Coventry. Touch for Thompson. Yes, he's done it. Well, it's a dream come true for Gary Thompson. Three goals he scored tonight. One for West Ham, two for Coventry. And Coventry are in front for the first time tonight. 3-2. While I was researching this, and I was looking back at that team that, that played around that time with you at Coventry, um, and, you know, the, yes, there yeah. were a smattering of good older pros to help you through, but it's, it's really interesting to see how many well-known young players there were at the time that, of course, went on to have great careers like yourself. So, Mark Haitley, Les Seeley, Gary Bannister, yeah. Gary Gillespie. I mean, Great time to be at Coventry, although, of course, you, Coventry was always a side that was always slightly looking over its shoulder, wasn't it? But um, some really great players there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, even from when I first joined the club, I think the um, as an apprentice, the first year they played Bristol City and they had a decent season, but they ended up having to get a result against Bristol City at Highfield Road to make sure they didn't go down. Jimmy Hill had uh, somehow the game started 20 minutes later than everybody else. And uh, Coventry and Bristol City got two all draw, and so they knew they were staying up. So the last 15 minutes, they're Coventry passing the ball in their half, then giving it to Bristol City, passing it in their half, and that seemed to set the trend for it. They were always fighting relegation. Now, as a young side, and like initially, the likes of Barry Powell, Tommy Hutchison, uh, Terry Yorath, Jim Brogan, um, Jim Blythe, Mickey Ferguson, Ian Wallace, that's some very, very good players. But we would always end up in that situation towards the end of the season. Um, after a couple of years, they started doing a changeover. Andy Blair got in the team. Gary Gillespie, who probably is one of the best players they had at Coventry. Gilly was different class. Bannister, myself, um, Haitley got in the team. Tom English, Danny Thomas. And all of a sudden, we had a young bunch of kids, hungry as, 
desperate to make a living, a, a name for ourselves, as it were. Uh, to, but we ended up, we, we could win five on the bounce, we could also lose five on the bounce. And it was just getting used to playing uh, and trying to be competitive and winning games. But as you say, that crew, it, most of them had decent decent careers. Danny Thomas would have played for England for a lot a lot of uh, games, but uh, he had a terrible injury. Um, Les Seedy had a great career. Um, look at Steve Jacobs, he had a bad injury as well, but he was one of the better players. Steve Whitten, we had some very, very good footballers, but Coventry Scouting at the time was uh, second to none. I mean, they brought kids from all over. They'd always be some Scotland, Wales, uh, down in Plymouth. They're always bringing kids from all over the place. So, as young kids, if you got in the team or got in the squad, you're always looking over your shoulder because they're all pulling the other gym out. I got in the team, yeah, I broke my leg. And as I turned me back, Hayley plays. And I remember I go in, I, I got the um, Young Player of the Year. So I broke my leg. I've got on the pitch on crutches, standing ovation from the crowd and everything. And uh, watch, uh, I think Coventry played Wolves. Mark Hayley scores two goals, don't he? So after the game, because obviously grown up with Mark and Tom and that, so I go in, wish him all the best and everything. They've let me sit in the dugout. I go in and wish him the best. Well done, Mark. You know, because we were all mates and that. We'd fall out, but we were all mates. And uh, Ron Wiley came over to me and he says, isn't it funny? He says, if one falls by the wayside, another one pops up. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> the place is gone. But he just used to say things to wind you up, to drive you on. And yeah. to be fair, it was competitive between all of us, but we ended up like having decent careers out of it. But that was some crew of country. If we'd have been kept together, the year we got to the um, semi-final, I think we got to the fifth round of the FA Cup as well. Um, you look at that squad and look at how, how well they did over the next five, five, six years or whatever. If we could have kept it together for another couple of years, I, I really think we could have done something. They, yeah. We brought in Jerry Francis. I think Jerry Daly was there at the time. Jerry come in. Jerry Francis, experienced player. Um, I just think a bit more experience in and around us. We, we could have done all right. Yeah. So what's the story behind your move to West Brom then in 1983, where we find you in the second interview? Uh, um, Coventry City, uh, well, Jimmy Hill, should I say. Now, Jimmy Hill is the genius. And as a, as a chairman, he used to invite the players. Say every two months, we'd all go to his house. He had a lovely house in the Cotswold. And, it, and he'd sit there and he'd say, oh, yes, uh, if you were hard, so never, that sort of table could be yours. That cost me 10 grand. That picture cost me five grand. One of them. So we'd sit there and we're going to be going on about it. But the food was brilliant. The, everything, about, the atmosphere was brilliant. You had horses. It was, it was a lovely place to be like. And um, Jimmy Hill's lost a lot of money in America. He, uh, I think it was Detroit Express mm. uh, that Coventry had a time with them. Because uh, the year I broke my leg, I was supposed to go over there for the summer. I think Haitley went and Bannister went and all that. But uh, they always had players going back and forth. Jimmy almost lost a lot of money. I think as part of the deal, we ended up getting a kid called Dave Bradford who came and played for Coventry. Um, it was another one, I'm sure, that we brought two lads over because there was nothing left in the deal. So Coventry, beat from being not wealthy, but they always run well, always you know, had money. We had the training ground. We, had, we, we owned our own ground. All of a sudden, it was a situation where they, they were struggling for money. And um, what, what happened was... I'd had Dave Sixons come as a manager. He's breaking my game down. And uh, I think I've been sent off against Norwich about two weeks before, whatever. So, like, uh, the, the wife's pregnant. I mean, my wife at the time, she's pregnant. And so we've had the day off. So we've ended up doing the shopping as you do. So I get into my house. And uh, it's, it's been about eight, nine o'clock now. Phone's ringing. I pick my phone up. Shimmy on. Where the fuck hell have you been? And I went, oh, hello, Mr. Chairman, good to speak to you. <laughs> the, wife's, the wife's pregnant. So what we thought we'd do, we'd go and buy some baby clothes and get a pram and that and uh, have a lovely meal. I've had a lovely evening. How's yours been? And he went, I've agreed a fee with West Brom. You're, go, you're going to go to West Brom. Ron Wiley by then was the manager of West Brom. He says, Ron will look after you. I've agreed the fee. Get yourself down there in the morning. Now, a year before, because I said, that's it. I said, how much, I have interest, how much are you selling me for? And he went, no, never you mind any of that. That's nothing to do with you. He said, but get yourself down to West Brom in the morning. And I went, mm, to be honest, they could have sold me the year before to uh, Newcastle, Newcastle, um, Arsenal and Leeds, sorry. So, um, and they were talking about 750. So I said, well, you could have sold me to Arsenal and Leeds. Um, the, the missus is pregnant now. I'm not going to root. I'm quite happy here. Like, um, Dave's breaking the game down. I'm quite happy to stay. And he went, you don't seem to understand if you don't leave in six weeks, we, we're going bankrupt. 
Now, I didn't realise that players are the first creditors anyway. So even if they go bankrupt, I'm still going to get paid somewhere along the line. But you don't know that as a young kid. So then I got off the phone, have a chat with my wife, Louise, and say, look, what should we do? And she said, well, go and talk to him. Like, you know, it won't hurt to go and talk, will it? So right, I'm going to go and go and have a talk. So in the morning, I get up, drive down to West Bromwich, go for a conversation. Ron then, he shows me around the ground a little bit. But by now, I'm definitely getting cold feet because I don't think around that time we played West Brom a few times. I never, never played in the six, was it 7 1 they beat us? Um, oh. The first time we wore the chocolate brown strip, but they beat us 7 1. Oh, I got dropped for that day. You get that game, thank, thank the Lord. But uh, they had, uh, the Indian sign over us for about 18 months or two years, then it was always beating us. And every time I played against them, Alistair Robertson, John Wyle, and if I was lucky, Martin Bennett would come on and just kick lumps out of me. So when I get down there, I'm thinking, do I really want to be involved with people that just basically don't see it like me? So I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll bluff it out me, Ron, have a conversation, get back to Coventry. Go and sit down, Ron's trying to bully me to sign in. I'm, I'm not going to sign. And I'm making up, you see, yeah, yeah, well, look, that's lovely, Ron, but he offers me some more money, and blah, blah, blah. Um, then in the end, Coventry only 10 grand. So I'm like, that's it. So I said, look, Ron, I'd love to sign, but Coventry owe me £10,000 loyalty. I've not asked for a transfer, so therefore I'm over the 10 grand. So um, I can't see, you know, can't see that being sorted. So you know, I have to go back to Coventry. Robert, get the chairman on the phone. So the secretary's got the chairman on the phone. Jimmy Hill's come on the phone. So Jimmy Hill starts talking. Ron and the secretary walk out the room. So Jimmy Hill goes, well, what do we owe you? I said, 10 grand, Mr. Chairman. £10,000, £10,000, £10,000. He said, right. He said, think about it. It's £40 a pound tax. So I had £6,000 straight away, £6,000, £6,000, £6,000. He says, right, it's uh, six grand, he says. You and your mate Tommy English, you buy stupid stuff all the time. You'll have some of them, them suits and all that. You'll probably get yourself a little motor before you know it. That's it's two grand, isn't it? And he's going, two grand, two grand. What are we doing two grand? He said, and then he says, two grand. Basically, I'll, I'll give you two grand because that's what you're going to end up with. And he goes, how's that sound? And I went, well, it sounds like two grand, but it doesn't sound like anything I'm going to leave the club for. <laughs> and he went, look, this is the best we can offer. We're not a wealthy club. We're going bankrupt. We're going to give you £2,000. And I was like, you're going to give me £2,000 out of the 10000 you owe me? And he went, basically, that's a long, long and short of it. Because we haven't got any money. Ron Wiley came in. Uh, the secretaries came in with Ron. Ron agreed to give me, well, the club were going to give me another three grand to make it up to five. And then, basically, he said, uh, something along the lines of, there are a load of expletives in it, like, you have two minutes. Get this contract signed, or you can piece off back. End up. Went out of the room, slammed the door. I'm like, ah, no way I'm signing this contract. Like, he can moan all he wants. It's got scared. I'm not signing this contract. Minute half later, I'm like, well, we're at the end of the world. At least, you know, the club's so signed a contract, basically. I signed a contract. I'll go back to Coventry. I'll go back to Coventry, and the wife says, uh, Coventry's sitting me looking for you. What do you mean looking for me? Dave Sexton, apparently, he's going hopping mad. I've missed training, obviously, because it's, it's, it's a training day. Um, he's fined me two weeks' wages. So I speak to this club secretary. Dave wants to see her. Dave used to live in a place called Lemington Spa. So I've drove over to Lemington Spa with the wife. Dave is missing family, lovely people. I go and see him and I say, I tell him what's happened. Now the chairman hadn't told him. Now I'm, I must be 22, 23. So I don't know the ins and outs of the politics and all that. But as a manager, if one of your players has been sold from India and you're the last to know, you kind of know you're in a bit of bother. So Dave, it was like thunder when he realised, but we had a conversation. He never blamed me. It was, it was um, I've been sort of railroaded. So I ended up um, going to leave, shook hands, then had a hug. It was quite emotional. And then um, I've got my car parked one way and I've tried to turn the car and it was a tight little road. So I must have, they was waving to me. There must have been about 20 turns. And I, I was sitting with my missus after, I bet they were, rounds were dropping off, going, I'm going push off like, so I just couldn't get away. It was like forward, back forward, back and turn a little bit. It went on for ages. And you know, the worst, the worst, longer it goes on, the worse you get as a driver. So they must have been waving, going, please, please go. My arms killing me. But that was basically the story. I went to um, West Bromwich Albion. Um, on the, um, the next day, I've gone to the training ground, or the ground, sorry. I've drove around the ground three times because all of a sudden it hits me. I've joined, I've been at Coventry since I was a kid. And I'm going to a new place with people that, give the impression they don't particularly like you. Um, and I'm thinking, basically, what have you done? Drove around the ground three times. In the end, so 
quite tired. They had to show some balls and that. Went in, spoke to Dave Matthews, who's passing that Garissi. So I said, um, Gary Thompson, I've just joined the club. Where, where do I go? Go to go into that room. He says, you're number one. I never realised Albion had signed a player called David Mills and his number was number one. He, they bought him for half a million quid and everything that could go wrong for a, peer, a player over a three-year period went wrong. So no one wore that number. So I walk in, they give me number one. I walk to number one. I just walk in the dressing room, say hello, put my head down, going to hang my jacket up. And uh, there's a banana hanging over the peg. So I'm like, oh, here we go. Knock the banana off. Derek Statham comes up to me. And he says, listen, John Wilde does that. He says he doesn't like the brothers. So straight away, I've got a problem, you know. So John Wilde was at the club for another three weeks and I basically tried to boot him every time we could, could in training. Found out 20 years later, Derek Statham did it as a welcome, as a wind-up. So that that's how my first day at the Albion went, really. And it was, from then on, really, um, there was a little spell. Gary Owen knew him for under-21s. And he said, if Tottenham gets involved in anything, after training, like they're having the banter, don't laugh. So I, they did all that. Like, I tried to um, say a little bit, nothing, to stony silence. I'm like, tough crowd this. Trying again, nothing. So in the end of it, I got my gear. Got the, I got the bath, had a wash, got my gear on. Went home, said to me, Mrs. They hate me. I ain't going back. She persuade, cajoled me to go back for the next two or three days. And then after a bit, the Albion used to have a night out once a month. They had the night out. And for that, that night, they told me what they'd been doing, just winding me up. To, and then they brought me into the fold. And from then on, it was plain sailing. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a little bit about cars, and we're going to come on to cars in a minute. Um, but just to, just to talk about West Brom, it seemed, look, just looking at your, your, your goals to game ratio, that um, probably yeah. your best seasons were there. And... Yeah. And you've got to play alongside the great Cyril Regis. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was the one shining light. When I went there, I thought, well, at least I'll be playing with Big C. Because when Coventry were getting beat by the Albion on a regular basis, and Laurie Cunningham was there as well, I used to watch Cyril. I think I was a young apprentice at the time, a young pro. I'd watch Cyril, Brendan, Laurie warm up. And like, I never used to bother watching people warm up. I watched them warm up, and they just glided across the surface. Cyril Regis was an era. And so when I thought I got a chance to go and play with him, and then, like, um, it, was, it was funny because as soon as I walked in, it made me feel, oh, he was like me mate. He didn't need big man. When I played, uh, he calmed me down because I was always a bit hot. I was really aggressive and that. Cyril was like, hey, he was like a Cambridge rabbit. Big man, just calm down. Just chill. Swear at you. Come on, big man. Don't get involved. He'd always be saying, don't get involved. Just calm, take care of it. He was that, that soothing influence on me all the time. He taught me stuff about playing, leaning into players and using my body against people at times. He told me he told me how to get involved in situations and get out of situations very well. He also taught me how to drink. So, yeah, I owe him an awful lot. <laughs> right. As promised, we're going to move away from the football itself for a little while and on to some of the other stuff, which is usually good for a few giggles. Uh, and as I said, let's start with the cars. And uh, you've got a hat-trick of 1980s right. motoring classics here. You've got a Talbot Solara, a Ford Capri... Oh. A Ford Capri and a Ford Cortina, which incidentally, my dad had all of those as well, um, which is where his similarities to footballers ends. Um, did you have a favourite amongst them? Uh, I would say the, um, the, the Ford the, like, Cortina, because it was like a GLS or something like that. But it was, like, it was almost like a Granada. It was a big vehicle, had lovely seats on it. It was, it was just a proper big man's car. It's something I always wanted to have like. Because it, it wasn't just a normal one, it, it, it had a little bit of extra going on. It was uh, deep blue. Um, when I was turning up, people knew I was coming. Like it was one of them where you, you get out of the vehicle and you're like, yeah. It was one of them. the the Solara, the Talbot Solara. I, I did like, but uh, because it was blue, it was um, it had Coventry City written all out all over it. My number, it, all the numbers were O R W, which is a Coventry um, Coventry, Coventry thing, and mine was nine W. And obviously, the, uh, Ian Wallace would have 10 and someone have the 8. So people knew who it was, who it was like. But you couldn't go anywhere because people, oh, Thompson's out again. Or Tom, you know. So it did drop you in a bit of trouble. The Ford Capri was the first car I ever bought. Um, I did buy a Triumph 1500, but I never drove it. I, I had it and I hadn't passed my test. And uh, in the end, my brother came and sort of nabbed it off me. Well, he, he offered to buy it. And I said, no, because I'll, I'll give you the car you'll give me back 37 half pence and then like you'll speak to mom, mom will badger me, I'll end up losing the car, so I'm not doing it. That's exactly what happened. So I bought it, he, he nicked the car off me. I bought this, um, the Capri, 
a brown Capri it was like. And um, it was sitting outside my drive, well, outside my digs. And um, I took my driving test. And because I had been, I'd been testing myself in the Capri anyway, he failed me. So he brought me back to where I was finishing. He said, oh, you failed Mr. Thompson. I was like, yeah, he failed. So imagine the next couple of days, and we, we lived in a place called Camden. Brighton training ground was about, I would say, seven mile away, and which was usually two buses. And so uh, Les Seeley and Val Thomas were in digs with me. And Les used to say, well, what are we going to do then? Are we going to get the bus? Or you get the technical break. And I'm like, well, I'm passing my test. But as you I cracked under peer pressure, so I ended up driving around a bit like, but in the end, um, I think I, I, play, I was in the commentary first team, and I, not, not a name, but people kind of knew me. In the end, I'm driving this car one day. I was going down a place called the Fosel Road. It was a sunny day, the, I mean, the windows down, music, I think it was Rick James blaring out, and uh, the old Bill pulled me over. And like, uh, then obviously I had a bit of a problem. My sister's a barrister. She spoke to barristers uh, and got me, uh, I went to court. They, they got me off it really, like, but uh, I got paid a fine and all that. But they basically said, you pass your test. So, and they were on the lookout for me. So I passed my test at the third time. And then I was off and running, but the Capri, beautiful car, but just caught, caused me nothing but grief. Uh, in the end, uh, Tom English smashed it. I did me, um, after Orbison smashed me, in the, I, I, won, I was chasing the ball. He went to tackle me. He's caught me and broke the foot, my foot arch. And uh, I've gone down. They put the magic sponge on me, a bit of water. Carry on, you'll be right. By the time I went to go home, I couldn't walk. Tom English took me car. He drove me home. Um, I, went to, I obviously went to bed. He picked me up in the morning took me to the treatment. So he basically was using my car because I couldn't drive in that. And uh, he rang me about two days later and he went, you're not going to, they used to call me Benson because the comedy fella Benson, the, mm. the butler. And he went, Benson, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what's that then, Tom? He said, because basically the phones were, there was no mobile phones. So he, had, he rang the canteen. And I went, what's up? He says, uh, I've just smashed the car. He said, what? He wrote it up outside the police station. So I went, well, don't leave it there. I said, no, move it. But uh, I think Tom was going to pay me, but uh, as, as per usual, you get about £10 here, £5 here, and I just wrote it off, put it down to experience. So, yeah, I lost the, the Capri win. Um, the, the Talbot Solara was a nice car. Uh, I enjoyed that one, but the main one had to be the Cortina. The Cortina was, was a nut. Mm. Well, you mentioned Rick James there, and um, when, when you've been asked about your favourite uh, music and musicians, Rick James comes up, as does Phil Linert, um or Phil Linus, oh. um, Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen, The Jam, which is all of those great taste, Gary, some legends there. But I can imagine a lot of the older players in particular were very much your, the, the Phil, Phil Collins and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny how you get drawn into listening to different things. I mean, when I first went to Coventry, I only listened to like say the OJs or the Temptations or, and a bit and reggae and Bob Marley, a bit of Scar, a bit of this. I never really listened to any other stuff, but there's 15 lads in a house together and they're all got their little music boxes and so music's blaring out. And that's the first time I'd heard like, uh, I'm gonna say Steely Dan or someone like that, or Mop the Hoople or any of them bands. And I'm like, what's all this? But bit Bobby, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. So they, uh, Cat Stevens, Gary Bannister introduced me to Cat Stevens and um, Bob Dylan. I obviously heard the name Bob Dylan and I heard a couple of his tunes. I think the times are changing everything. And Gary Bannister played, um, the, uh, what's his name? Um, just trying to think. The guy that um, went to jail, Hurricane, Ruben Carter. Mm-hmm. Now, the ballad of Ruby Carter, like it, now that's that album. Gary Bannister played that time after time after time, and in the end, we all knew it. In the end, we all got it. So you got indoctrinated into different kinds of music. Phil Linnett for myself was like the main man. I went to a, um, a concert with my girlfriend, Danny Thomas's girlfriend. I think Tom English was there. There was like five or six lads with with our girls and that. And like I didn't want to go to this, but it was a night out, so we've gone to this concert. Like, and um, it, I was we were sitting. Danny sprawled out. And I was sitting on this seat, and this guy's come up and went, you're in the seat, mate. But he didn't even say it politely, he just went, you're in the seat, and he gave it the bigger. And I said, listen, mate, I do apologise for me in your seat, but if you talk to me again like that, I basically want to knock you out. Well, so he started off a little bit like edgy, and sitting down, everyone's having a drink and that. Then, like, I'm still feeling a bit aggy after what's been said and that. And then, like, everything goes dark. Then, all of a sudden, there's one light in the middle of this stage and that, and there's this black guy standing in the middle of the stage, leather gear on, Got, he's got the perfect barley as well, like 
and he strummed me the bass guitar. And I looked, I was like, I want to be that man. That was Phil Lillard. And from then on, that was it. I just loved that fella. I thought he was brilliant. Yeah. And well, he lived it properly as well. Well, that's true. <laughs> now let's move on to your favourite food and drink. Um, and you, they, you should get more refined tastes as you get older and more successful. But you seem to have mm. done things the opposite way round. Because at Coventry in 1981, you were quaffing yeah. less cargo and white wine with a dash of lime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at West Brom, when you're a couple of years older and better off, I'm assuming, um, it was steak and yeah. kidney pie and milk. So where did it all go wrong, Gary? Danny Thomas. I mean, Les Cargo, we'd never dream of eating that sort of stuff before. Like, I mean, but West India families, we ate basically rice and uh, curry, uh, goat, and we, we ate basic food, jerk chicken, like, we ate proper food now. And then mm. also I met Coventry and I was eating different foods. Now. Danny Thomas, Danny comes from a place called Workshop, and Danny's the poshest black man you'll ever meet. And he was like, one day we were in a nightclub and he went, um, just, just try some of this, dear boy. You just got a scar gown. So we just messed about. Yeah, let's like, have a bit of this. I tried it. It was just laced in garlic. And that did I thought, that ain't too bad. I, I was drunk at the time. And that Danny used to drink white wine with a dash of lime. So we went with the white wine one. So I ended up just drinking that. And um, I, I mean, I was a, I used to play at drinking then. I'd have every sort of six weeks, to, uh, two months, I'd have a couple of drinks. But I was out a lot, but I was never drinking an awful lot. But until I met Regis and Owen and all them like, but yeah, that's how it started with the Lascargo and wine and all that. And then uh, went to um, the Albion and it was much more basic uh, crew I was messing, messing about with. And like, I uh, just had a thing at the round that time for steak and kidney pies. Uh, Louis started cooking them and I just loved them. I just, mm. uh, and the milk, I think that uh, because it broke my leg, they were always saying, oh, loads of milk for calcium and all that. So I drank loads of milk for a time, but there's it comes to a point now I can't I can't have milk. If I have coffee, it's more or less black. I have a hint of it in tea. I can't have milk. If I, if I drink anything with too much milk, and I'm going to puke. Well, um, your miscellaneous dislikes is an interesting one. Um, you've chosen ignorant people and hangers-on. Now, I'm sure the super wealthy young players of today have entourages and hangers-on galore. Yeah. But I mean, how was yeah. that sort of thing back in your day? All these people sort of you know trying to sort of basking your reflected glory there was always people hanging around and obviously when we get into the team we don't know anybody but the first team is the Tommy Richardson's they've always got people around them and so they end up becoming our friends and they were always catching tickets or whatever and I never, I never liked all that because um, I mean I spend time and chat with everybody but they never tell you if you play bad whereas my brother who would always come to the game with his mates who were basically the, the hangers on from my, my posse as it were they go, you were shit today. And they, but I'd have that because they're honest like, because you'd you be walking on, people would go, oh, well, I played today, big man, blah, blah, I'll pat you on the back and that. And you know you ain't done too well because Ron Wiley and Gordon Mill have let you know you haven't done too well. But everyone be saying how well you played. And like um, my brothers and my mates who come from school or whatever would say, that's terrible today. Had you missed a chance or whatever? So they'd let you have it. So I'd rather have that than people like just basically hanging on and telling me how great I am. Because I, I can do that myself. I spend time telling myself how brilliant I am. So I, di I didn't need all of that. And people, I don't I think everyone dislikes ignorant people. People who just who just are off with you and all that and, and rude. And I don't, I don't think there's any call for it. Yeah. Um, this is that a... hasn't changed in all my years. <laughs> well, th this next one, I like this one. Um, if you hadn't made it as a footballer, what would you have done? And there's a bit of a difference in the two um, answers you gave for your chosen career yeah. paths. Either a chartered accountant. Yeah, yeah. Or, or joined in the army. So were, yeah. either, were either of those realistic options at the time or did you just think of something on the spot? The chartered accountant, I think, was... Um, I was obviously bored and just went for something like, oh, yeah, I'll have a go at that because there's no hope in hell of me being a chartered accountant. I spent most of my time at school standing outside the classroom pulling faces at people, like, even though they said I was quite intelligent, but uh, never really... No concentration levels, like, so I had no chance of ever doing that, like. Uh, the army, my brother joined the army, he fought in the Falklands. And I think for most kids of that era, in around Kings Heath in Birmingham, where we lived, there weren't too many opportunities. So if I hadn't been lucky enough to become a footballer, because a lot of my mates went and worked in factories or butcher shops or whatever, then the other and the option would have been the army. But uh, yeah, I think the chartered accountant was a pipe dream. The army probably, that's probably what I would have done because it was so athletic. And like, I ain't the great one for guns and all that, but uh, the athleticism of it, uh, the, the working hard and camaraderie and hanging with a group all the time I'd, I'd have that yeah um 
Are you a religious man, Gary? Because in both of these interviews, the person you'd most like to meet was Pope John Paul II. Yeah, that's uh, that's me for me first wife, Louise. Um, she was a Catholic, and like, obviously her family were very, very... Uh, they, they were Catholics, but not re really religious practicing Catholics, but mm. she always wanted to meet the Pope, and they'd always talk to me about, are oh, we going to go to Rome, we're going to do this and that. Um, so I think I just that's why I put the Pope down. Although saying that, my boy, now he's... Um, he was... Um, he was born three months premature. So like uh, they gave him the last rites at the time. Years and years later, he actually took up the faith and he's, he's devout. He's quite into uh, the church and all that. He reads an awful lot about it. He talks about it. He chastises me for swearing. He speaks to me about um, my lifestyle. And we have the, that father-son chat, although it's the wrong way around because he's always talking to me about the way I live my life. Uh, he's been, he's last few weeks, he's been taking me back to church as well. And I started going with him, but I find it interesting. But uh, he's really into it. Um, for me, it was, it was something because she wanted to do it, and I thought that would be nice. That could be something nice because not not many people get to see the Pope, so it'd be nice to go and see him. But uh, it wasn't I think it was something I put down. It's not something that I was desperate to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I've I've listed all your clubs in the introduction to this episode, and um, you played for some good ones. Although your time at each one tended to be maybe one, two seasons each uh, each time. Um, if, yeah, I asked, yeah. if I asked you to pick one of those uh, to, to revisit uh, and to deal with unfinished business or put right any wrongs, uh, which club would it be and why? Uh, it would probably be Watford. Um, because Aston Villa is a club I supported as a kid. So I achieved the dream of playing for the club I support, even though we got relegated in my first year, we got promoted. So that there's no unfinished business there. Um, but I left Villa my brother died the year we got promoted. Um, my marriage broke up and uh, I was I was a bit of a, not a loose end. I was a bit lost. And I ended up Watford coming for me. I think a couple of clubs come in, but Graham in the end sold me to Watford. And um, I went to Watford, but I don't think they ever saw the best of me. And so if I had any chance again, I'd probably go back to the show. Because the player that was at, um, maybe in Sheffield Wednesday as well, because I was there as a record signing. and But I didn't feel he played me in a position that I was, yeah, wanted to play. And I, I think maybe, I, I was saying the other day, if it's anyone's fault, it's probably mine because I wasn't, I wasn't as accepting because I played with big strikers all the time. I played with C. Lee Chapman, Mark Haightley, Mickey Ferguson. I played with big guys all the time, except Paul Wilkinson. So it should be a problem. I played with Lee Chapman. Me and Chappie get on ever so well. But um, Sheffield Wednesday, I'd, I would say I was a failure there. And Watford, I was a failure there. So it's probably be them two clubs mm. I'd want to go back to and, show the Gary Thompson that was at West Brom or Villa in the second year. Yeah. Now, he moved to Crystal Palace late in the 89-90 yeah. season as cover for Ian Wright. He'd broken his leg. Yeah. Um, however, yeah. you were cup-tied for the FA Cup final mm -hmm. against Manchester United. So, I imagine that must have been simultaneously a great experience to be part of the group in the build-up and all that on the day, but also must have been yeah. hugely frustrating that you couldn't be involved. It was frustrating in as much as uh, I was at Watford. I'd... Uh, I fell out with the manager, Steve Harrison, and Steve I knew at Aston Villa, and uh, when he became manager at Watford, it, it was different. He brought me out in, and like, uh, after a while, things between us changed. He made, he, he, I'd, I'd been, I'd been in a, um, I broke up with my, my wife at the time, so I was rushing back to see my boy for a week, every weekend after the game on a Saturday. I'd leave at Monday morning, and uh, six o'clock, get the training. Anyway, I leave this one day, I come off the M6, get onto the M1, Watford. As I turn, you go around the corner and down onto the M1, it's standstill. So I'm stuck there. I think, oh, well, it'll, it'll move in a bit. Three hours later, I'm still stuck, stuck there. Finally crawl to the next services. I think it's Watford Gap. End up phoning the club, telling them the, the problem. Um, they say, okay, well, we know on the news because it was just, the motorway was blocked. Anyway, it took me till 12 o'clock to get in. So, but say half 12, I burst through the doors. I see the girls. They're like, the manager wants to see her. Go see the manager. And I burst through the door to Harry and say, Harry, you won't believe what's been going on. It's been carnage out there. There's bodies everywhere. But somehow I battled my way and got in. And he's gone to get your kit off. So I put my kit on. He took me to places to, in Watford, Watford's ground. I'd never seen before or wanted to see again. He ran me till I was literally sick. And then uh, the rest of that week, I trained with the lads. Never really said an awful lot. We were playing Sheffield United on the weekend. And there was a hurricane on the Thursday. So we thought the game would be off. In them days, you could have uh, your 11 and two subs, and but they took 14, and I was the 14th man. So I'm just going, they're taking me to inconvenience me. 
I've gone all the way up there. He's put me on the bench. Now, in them days, I think if you didn't get on, you were a cup tie. 10 minutes to go, 15 minutes to go. I realised what's going on. So I go the other side of the ground, do my stretches there. They send Tom White to get me, call me over, put me on the pitch. We get a draw out of the game, but I'm cup tied now. So by then I knew the situation. A few months later, or a couple of months later, I get the move to Palace. I say to Coppola in the first meeting, I'm cup tied. And he goes, oh, I know, not a problem. You'll be bought to help us stay up from relegation. Great bunch of lads, love the club. Um, Righty, Brighty, all and Andy Gray, Pardew, Jeff Thomas, Mike Nigel Martin, proper crew, um, Salako in it. But because uh, I knew I was cup tied and I couldn't play, I went to the Liverpool game in the semi final, um, thinking that they had half a chance because they got beat 9 0 earlier in that season. And everyone was saying, oh, it's going to be double figures, blah, blah, blah. But having been worked with them, I knew that sort of they weren't going to fold like that. That was a freak result. And for that group, group of Palace players, I think they finished third in the league the following season. This was a crew that wouldn't roll over. And I thought it'd be, it'd be a different game. I took my lad to Villa Park to watch the game. So I weren't surprised when Palace won. They, they kept me involved in all the uh, build-up to the, the, the cup final. I was on the, the, the sing, single where they all have a sing-song and all that. Did all of that. Uh, got me tickets for the game, watched the game. Um, it was great to be part of it, but I wasn't upset or anything because I knew from the off I couldn't be involved. If I was fit and could have been selected, then it'd be more frustrating because there was a chance of me playing. From the moment I went into the club, I knew there was no chance of me playing. And to be fair, Palish, I think they'll say, Jeff Thomas and all them, they, were, they played that game against Man United in the final. And Palish, the first game, Palish should have won. They did ever so well. Like, I think it was three all in the end. Like Palace yeah. played so well, and, and that was the one. You know, you get one chance at it. That was the one chance to win, win that game. They got beat one 0 in the replay, but that was their time. But it wasn't good crew players. Yeah, absolutely. That they were kind of. Uh, although Palace were sort of, they were given the moniker, weren't they? The, the team of the eighties at the back end of the seventies. If you look at the players, yeah. then they were kind of the team of the nineties without ever getting that that name added to them. Didn't yeah. they? with Wright and Bright yeah. and. Uh, as you say, Salako, Jeff Thomas, Pardew, Nigel Martin in goal, you know, great, really, really good side played, good English football, I think, would be a good way to put how that team played. Yeah, well, the, the dress, I went in the Palace, the training ground, and the training ground was like a, um, they said, we used to have a place at Cardiff, and they call it Dog Shit Park, it was just like, as you can imagine, full of dog shit, and like, it was just lumps and bumps everywhere, the showers were always cold and that, but Coppel wanted it, um, he wanted it rough and ready, he wanted he didn't want to play with Donners. And he, Steve Koppel, I, I'm saying that I'm, I'm doing a book with a guy called Bill Howe. And Steve Koppel was the man that gave me about my love for the game. He, he would say, he would, he would use two sentences where most managers would use 15 and that. Two, this is what I want from you, blah, blah, blah. And he'd be clear and concise in what he wanted. Excite me. Two touchy run off, but in there, I've gone play. Great. Go, excite me. I, I come in one day after a game or half time. And he went, well, done about you, like I'm bored shitless. Well, I can't watch anymore of that any chance of you doing this and doing that and you think that, that's what I want clarity he, he's telling us what he wants that Crystal Palace side that crew um, from the likes of Eric Young and Andy Thorne and, and Nigel Martin and Salako um, just trying to think um, Pardew Jeff Thomas Wright and Bright and Young Collymore was coming mm-hmm. up through the ranks and Jamie Morley and all that Gareth Southgate that was a crew and a half like but that, um, well, I, I was saying the other day Crystal Palace was the first what I would class as a black club Mm-hmm. Before, because before that time there was not, there was black players at Clawsfield. There weren't as many black people, but it was like a black feel about it. It was a proper football club. It's loud, music on all the time. It's boisterous. They'd not roll over. People, the people would fight the corner. Wrighty was the loudest man in the world. How you see him on TV? He's exactly like that. People mm-hmm. say, does he put it on? He might. He's toned it down a bit for TV. That kid's loud. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing, the whole atmosphere was brilliant. There was always laughs and jokes and. and it was never about money. It was about togetherness. It was like an upper-class Wimbledon, if you like. Yeah. But they played proper football. They wanted to get the ball in the penalty area. They wanted to score goals. wanted to create stuff. And they stood their ground. They didn't... If anyone got involved in any bother, Pardew was one of the first involved in it. And they'd, they'd be backing anyone up. It was, it was like a team. It was like my mates. I grew up with these boys. Chrissy Coleman was there. I think he was a kid at the time. And they all developed into having very, very good careers. But they were proper blokes. Yeah. So, Gary, what happened to you after football and what are you up to these days? Um, after football, I ended up coaching at um, Northampton for a bit. Then I ended up going to uh, Brentford, got sacked from Brentford, 
and then um, sort of drifted out of it for a little bit. I'd, I'd done football, I played football on and off, and then went straight into coaching uh, since I was at the age of eight or nine. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do something different. So I did a couple of jobs for a few weeks, and then I thought, nah, the real world's a bit too tough, and I want to get back into football. So I did a bit of coaching with Kevin Wilson at Hooknell Town and places like that. But anyway, I did um, did a bit of driving. My nephew, Daniel Kane's the runner. He's um, he, had, he had a company called Beyond 400. And so I got, I was made an assistant director, associate director, sorry, at that. And uh, we did the PR for about four or five years. Really enjoyed it. Because obviously I'm meeting people in hotels and chatting, meeting, you know, getting connections and all that. And we did a lot of PR work. The company, not Dingo, bankrupt being here but we lost a few contracts I stopped doing that um, Louise took ill and um, I ended up um, doing a driving job for a little bit and it gave me access to drop her pick her up take her to hospital and all that and that was four years ago and I'm still doing it I remember saying to my daughter after the first day if I'm doing this in a month's time come and slap me four years later I'm still doing it but yeah it passes the time and I'll do the radio for Aston cover Aston Villa and we used to have a phone it's just stopped because of Covid but we had a phone in on a Tuesday night. We'd have all the Villa fans ring in, all the Midlands fans about games and that. So we do that. We do um, follow the Villa, cover their games and that. So it gave me the scope to do that as well. So a bit of driving, bit of radio work, bit of this, bit of that. It's, it's, it's okay. Plus I've got four grandkids. So you can imagine if I'm not doing the radio, I'm not driving, then uh, I'm, I'm with them. And they, they much as I love them, they, they are very tiring at times. So if this is the part of the show where normally I, I say, like, you can have a time machine and you're going to go back to 1981, 1983 from the, the time of these interviews uh, and you can go yeah. give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Piece of advice, I would say don't leave West Brom. I had my best goal scoring period there. And, oh, if you do leave West Brom, take uh, Clive Whitehead with you because Clive Whitehead we used, to play, used to be a, uh, a winger. He ended up playing fullback, but he used to overlap and stay stayed in the same either side. And they could throw crosses in for fun. And I'm a, I'm a centre forward that attacks crosses. If I went anywhere, what I should have done is take Whitehead with me. And when I, I shouldn't have left West Brom. I left West Brom because uh, they, they, I went to see Giles about a rise, ended up um, saying, do you fancy going to Switzerland? Ended up going to Switzerland. Come, they, they messed the deal up. I came back. They signed Crooks and Variety. So they have to get rid of me now. So I ain't going to Sheffield Wednesday. But uh, my advice to that person, sit tight. Don't do anything silly. Because I was of the mind, I have to play. I can't be sitting on the bench and all that. I have to play. And because as soon as Crooks and Variety were in there, the chairman's trying to get me out of the door. Then I'm thinking, well, season starts soon. I've got to play. Spoke to Sheffield Wednesday. Spoke to uh, Chelsea. Uh, QPR. Arsenal came in, but they dropped out at 300 grand. And like uh, in the end, I went to Sheffield Wednesday. We were having a conversation and it went on for that best part of a day negotiating. The team of agents that took me to Switzerland were involved in this deal. My wife's house on team. I've lost my lad. He was three or four at the time. I walk out into the, I'm trying to find him. Someone sits out on the pitch. He, my boy always carried the ball with him. I walk out on the pitch and he's scoring, kicking the ball into the goal with Howard Wilkinson. Howard's showing how to celebrate. <coughs> so I'm like, he'll do for me with all this palaver going on. He's got time to mess about with the four-year-old boy. Signed for Howard Wilkinson. And, uh, yeah, I should have stayed where I was. Yeah. Well, Gary, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, thanks for coming on and looking back at these old no shoot interviews. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Yes, it's very good, actually. Because I, I was going to look at the uh, what I'd said, but I, I, I was so busy rushing around, I never got around to it. You reminded me of a lot of, lot of stuff I said. Some very silly things, but yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's been very good. Fantastic. And, and you can be found on Twitter, can't you, for anybody who wants to ch chat football or whatever with you? Yeah, yeah. At Thompson um, 1 Gary, I think it is. Right? Something like that. Fantastic. Well, all the best. It's been a pleasure. No problem. You take it easy. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com. 
and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.